Well, thank you for the invitation, and good afternoon, everybody. Um, my title is both an aspiration and, as you will see, a question. How is this possible? And I want to start off with a definition of technology, because it's, and I see this would apply to many of you in the room as well as myself, up till a few decades ago when we talked about technology, we meant something entirely different. We didn't use the word to refer particularly to digital technology or computer processing. It was simply a world of machines. Mm -hmm. And the, the very fact that the meaning of that word has changed so substantially speaks to something which is happening in our lives now. And in particular, I want to focus on the impact on cities. It is coming rapidly to cities, that is, this new form of technology. Um, I think we can say it's inevitable because we can. It's in our nature to use whatever means become available to us. Clearly, there's a drive for profit. There's a drive for convenience. But is it an unequivocal good? And my argument is there are some very serious choices to be made. And I think what I'm going to do first is look at a past embrace of technology which was uncritically adopted with unforeseen consequences and collateral damage and the aftershocks that that produced, a period of reassessment and a kind of action-reaction. And I'm bringing that example forward because I think we need to anticipate something similar and we need to be able to make some choices against values. You may have guessed that this is the piece of technology I'm talking about. The euphoria after World War II around this wonderful invention of the internal combustion engine, uh, which had been around for many decades prior, but all of a sudden it seemed like it would lead us to a new way of life. And in 1939, in the World's Fair in New York, uh, there was a pavilion sponsored by General Motors called Your World of Tomorrow, the Futurama Pavilion. Literally millions of people went on that moving sidewalk around an enormous diorama, and they saw an image of a different kind of world. And what General Motors was selling was not so much automobiles, but a way of life. I, insert, I came across um, an interview with Jane Jacobs done, I think, in 1962, where she was talking about, as a young woman, actually going to see this Futurama pavilion and thinking not much of it. She didn't take it seriously. She didn't think this was really going to lead to anything, which fascinating in terms of what subsequently happened. So that really was the beginning of a mass exodus from cities. Uh, these are some images, uh, largely returning soldiers after World War II and their young families moving out of city neighborhoods. My own family, I was born in Brooklyn, grew up in one of those six-story buildings that you see all the time, living with my grandparents. And my parents, my uncles and aunts, everybody was part of that exodus, and it looked like this was going to lead the way to green pastures 
a much better way of life. So what we know subsequently is uh, what has ensued is a vast restructuring of the urban environment uh, based on this piece of technology. Eventually, it ended up producing a network of financial institutions, developers, lawyers, builders, brokers, real estate agents, contractors, who all became organized very efficiently to produce this post-war auto-oriented paradigm by the square kilometer. And this image, which happens to be part of the greater Toronto area, could be pretty much the outskirts of any city in North America and increasingly many other parts of the world. Uh, there's an astonishing sameness to all this. The template um, has been adopted. It reminds me of uh, Dwight Eisenhower's most important speech when he left office and he spoke to the military industrial complex. Well, in fact, we had a suburban industrial complex that was equally organized. What it did to our cities is it led us from parts of the city, which you see on the upper left, that happens to be Front Street near the St. Lawrence Market. And as you went through the rings of the tree, out of the city decade by decade, the roads got wider, the radii at the curbs got larger, the buildings got pushed back with surface parking lots in front of shopping plazas, and eventually you get to the tarmac at the power center or the shopping mall where human beings are literally not meant to be on foot except when they get from their cars into the mall. So what we know now is this paradigm, <laughs> this dominant paradigm, tests to failure pretty quickly. That Life magazine cover from 1960 shows that as quickly as Eisenhower built the interstate highway, the 46,000 miles of interstate highways in the U.S., they filled up. Uh, what we didn't understand is the extent to which we would be polluting the atmosphere uh, with CO2 emissions. We certainly didn't appreciate the public health crisis that as a result of the sedentary lifestyle, this is before screens, mind you, this is just people driving from place to place, uh, the increases in obesity, in heart disease, in hypertension, in diabetes, particularly on children, uh, would become critical. No one anticipated that. And we didn't appreciate the dependence on fossil fuels that this would lead to. So, which leads me to this warning this may be harmful to your health in a profound way. The reality ends up not like the dream, and now we have inherited the negative unintended consequences. Uh, this word cloud is something that was put together by Civic Action uh, based on a poll they did in the greater Toronto area, and this is all about the toll that this uh, form, this way of life, this form of commuting is taking on people's lives, things that they think they are losing, uh, this is from the Medical Officer of Health in Toronto, who weighs in on the issue of lack of walkability. And as the colors get intense, as you move into the auto-oriented suburbs, you have more of that syndrome of various forms of public health problems that I was talking about. So action-reaction, this is what's interesting. This is the recovery. What has happened now is we're in the throes of a second paradigm shift, which is a kind of reverse engineering, a rebound from that car-centric vision. 
And the so-called North American dream, which you see illustrated on the left, is being replaced by an equally potent North American dream, particularly among young people, which can be summarized by saying living and working in a place where you can walk, where you can get your groceries without getting into a car, where you can use a bike, and where you have access to transit. And if you look at real estate values, you will see that wherever those features are available, that's where people who can afford it want to be. Um, so this really has been this progression from the first paradigm to the second has been the subject of my entire professional career. Um, I wrote a book called Walking Home. You can see how the title actually fits the change that I'm talking about. And a key component of this is a reassessment of the technology that drove that first paradigm shift and its appropriate place in the urban context. So what can we learn from this? First of all, the pushback began with a kind of grassroots rediscovery of the virtues of older rejected neighborhoods. If you go back a few decades, when the official plans for Toronto do, drew a great colored banana which hovered over all of the inner city neighborhoods, the streetcar, Main Street type of neighborhoods that are so familiar, the annex right around us, Riverdale, all the ones that we're familiar with, and they were seen as obsolete. And they were to be replaced, the main streets were to be uh, replaced with shopping malls. We got one of those at Pape and Girard. We got the Dufferin Mall. There's a little one on the beach. Mm -hmm. um, that was part of a grand plan to replace all of them. We were going to get rid of the streetcars. We were basically going to continue with the kind of urban renewal that happened south of St. Jamestown and Quebec Gothic. Some of you may remember those fights. But eventually, people discovered that these older neighborhoods had overlooked qualities. They offered proximity, walkability, culture, convenience, stimulation, local shopping, transit. In other words, we went back and we revived low-tech or no-tech alternatives to the automobile. And we know how popular that has become now. And my sister, who is an anthropologist, often points out that it's um, really important in any cultural shift to have holdouts, people who actually don't go along with the program, who maintain the older abandoned systems and situations so that when we need them, we can recall them for the survival of the culture. And indeed, that's what happened. So here is the radar screen of the Urban Land Institute, the major organization of developers started in North America, now it's around the world. This is people who are marketing real estate, and it's telling their members that when they want to lease and sell real estate, they should pay attention to the fact, this is 2013, that what their clients are looking for is compact, walkable, mixed-use environments with reliable, convenient transit, and that they need to pay attention to this. So I cut my teeth in urban design uh, when I was recruited by David Crombie to come into the city uh, at a point when the Reform Council had been elected and they were looking at transforming the downtown. And the very first assignment that was handed to me is an area that you see in the photograph called at that time the East Downtown. You can see the back of the Flatiron Building. You might recognize that. 
what this had become. How many people actually in the room remember this? One. Okay. <laughs> uh, it was a gigantic, cheap parking lot for people who worked at King and Bay. That's essentially what it would become. And all the remaining heritage buildings were being knocked down one by one to add more parking. This was before the St. Lawrence neighborhood. This, the St. Lawrence market was actually on the chopping block. Nobody was using it. It was going to be demolished because it too was seen as obsolete. So this is what that looks like today. There's not a single surface parking lot left. It has become a vibrant, mixed-use neighborhood with tens of thousands of people living and working. And so what the, the paradigm shift that we're in now as part of that recovery is we're rethinking our relationship to that piece of technology, namely the car, and we're getting back on our feet, and we're uh, straining to try and build sufficient transit capacity and active transportation. And this has happened in a kind of jerky fashion with a number of big moves and smaller moves and some contested. It's a messy process. But when Bill Davis and the Premier said, if you want to build a city, this is a point to stop building urban expressways, and he famously canceled the Spadina. So this is the realization that we've come to that this is simply unworkable. We have a whole new generation of transportation engineers. They no longer call themselves traffic engineers, which is interesting. And they've reversed the pyramid. Pedestrians first, cycling, transit, automobiles are still present, but they no longer occupy the place of privilege. New York City has uh, developed a street design manual, and they are making changes through all the five boroughs such as you see here, to rearrange within the rights of way uh, the allocation of space to privilege all of the users who have been squeezed out by the car. Uh, we have a great organization here in Toronto called 8 to 80 Cities. If you're not familiar with it, you should be. Uh, they're worldwide spokespeople for this shift for all the reasons that I've mentioned of getting people back on their feet. And this is a really interesting statistic. It's not just young people, but age 60 to 79, that cohort is more than a third of the biking boom in North America. So this is, this is really interesting. The 8 to 80, by the way, says that if you take an 8-year-old and an 80-year-old as indicator species, and you make a city that works for them walking and cycling, you've got a city that works for everyone. 80 is not a cutoff, by the way. <laughs> um, I served as a couple of years as interim chief planner in Boston. Uh, when I began to work there, it was just the beginning of the dismantling of the, of the central artery, which you see here, which was built in the mid-20th century. It has now been replaced by the Rose Kennedy Greenway. And I'm going to briefly show you uh, one of my latest and I think most interesting projects in Toronto, which is the Bentway, which is taking a piece of the elevated Gardner Expressway, built about the same time as the Central Artery in Boston, and looking under the lid, under the deck, uh, creating a pedestrian space some two kilometers in length, uh, which serves a whole variety of different purposes. So something that was created only with the automobile in mind, 
turns out through uh, discovery, seeing something hidden in plain sight that becomes incredibly valuable. I don't know how many of you have uh, been down there to skate when we opened last year. The skating is opening again around December 21st. Uh, the first weekend that we opened, 30 below, we had 20,000 people who came and put on their skates to skate on our skating trail. Um, these, were, these first images were of what we hoped it would be. This is the strong gate at the other end that we opened in June. And these are some photographs of what's actually happening. And uh, we had for water light, which you may have heard about, with Don Roostgaard from the Netherlands, we had 30,000 people come out a few weeks ago to see that exhibit. So clearly there was a pent up desire. This is Strong Gate. This is a concert happening at the other end by the visitor center. Uh, this is a social media sensation. But what's really interesting is this reassessment of technology has led to a completely different way of people understanding the city, their mental maps of the city. So rather than only orienting themselves in the region by the 400 series highways and by major arteries, we're now thinking of the ravines, we're thinking of the trails, we're thinking of all the green sinews of the city as major ways to move around. So now let's go back to our current version of the technological shift. And as we embrace that new paradigm that I've been describing and enter the recovery mode, this is a really interesting moment to actually think about this new form of technology that's entering our lives. What can we learn from that experience and how can we apply it to the choices to be made? And obviously this is affecting everything. It's not just Uber and Airbnb, it's pretty much every aspect of our lives. It has remarkable possibilities, as did the internal combustion engine, but there are many valid concerns and they're being raised all the time, protecting privacy, control, ownership and use of data, potential for social isolation, narrow banding and loss of common ground with serious implications that I'm going to talk about for a heterogeneous society like ours, diminished human encounters, loss of social skills, and I'll just mention something that drives me crazy among young people, which is, I don't want to talk, I just want to text. Mm -hmm which I find absolutely amazing. When I talk to young people, they, to lose body language, to lose tone of voice, to lose all those forms of communication, and reduce that to a few simple words on the phone, I don't get it. But this idea of removing human contact has long been our Achilles heel. Something in us wants to replace ourselves. So this is Horton Hardart. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. Right after World War II, this was a sensation in New York City. You could go in this place and there were little glass windows. And actually there were people behind the windows who were putting meals in there. But you could put coins in and pull out a meal. And it was seen as something new and wonderful. The fact that you had eliminated human contact in getting your food in a restaurant. And here's a uh, uh, current version of the same thing. It looks a little more slick. It's called pizza. Same idea. Uh, getting to shopping alone 
This seems to be a major drive in our culture now. How do we eliminate all the people that we deal with in getting food? So I use retail, this is Kensington Market, of course, as an example. Is the only purpose of shopping to get our goods as efficiently as possible, or is there another whole purpose which we're ignoring, which is conviviality, which is sociability, which is interaction with other human beings? And what might we sacrifice in the process? I love this <laughs> cartoon from The New Yorker. This is what grocery stores, to the extent that we even have them anymore, might look like. Take away all the tellers. This is Amazon's new version of a supermarket. By the way, all the cities that were competing so vigorously for Amazon, offering bribes of billions of dollars, did they ever think about that the avowed purpose of Amazon is to wipe out all their main streets? <laughs> so clearly, this, this is one of the risks I want to point to, that we have the danger of actually retreating from, literally from the moment we can, a child can hold one of these devices in his or her hands of retreating into cyberspace. This is in the airport. This is something I find absolutely hideous. In some of the gates in um, Pearson, you have to sit in front of one of these screens right in your face. And they're, putting, they're proposing to install 7,000 of them in gates around North America. So you don't have a choice. You can hardly talk to somebody when you're sitting in a situation like this. Cell phone addiction and FOMO, the fear of missing out, has become uh, something that we're more the addiction to the cell phone of having to check it every few minutes um, is, is becoming a really serious problem. I've learned a new word recently. Uh, how many of you have heard of disintermediation? Okay, there are a few. This came from the world of finance, and it refers to the phenomenon, let's say, in the world of banking, of getting rid of the intermediaries, of doing your own investments online, of getting rid of bank tellers, getting rid of all those people who are in between you and the transactions. My worry is that this disintermediation, if you take that word and apply it, not just to financial transactions, but to other things, is what we are trying to do to everything. I'm not going to show you this video. This is an eight-minute video. In 1958, the Disney Corporation made a very similar video, only in that case, it's called uh, Magic Highway USA. In that case, it's about doing exactly the same thing with the car, removing all human contact. So. This, this is my cautionary tale. This is a little photograph I took in a Starbucks in Palo Alto. Um, didn't have to try hard. <laughs> Starbucks is designed for people. Every single person in Starbucks was on a device, and all those little tables are designed for people to be alone. This is one which you may know on King Street called Forno Cultura. Um, the owner is a young architect. And it's not that technology is not present, and that's my main point. I'm not a Luddite, I'm not advocating that we don't use technology, but what he did, if you look at the tables back here, 
The tables are 30 centimeters wide for the stools, and they're designed, you can see there are no screens with people sitting at those tables. They're designed so without forcing you, when you go there, you almost always end up in a conversation either with the people you came with, or even better, with people you didn't come with, because of the physical relationship that is set up among human beings. Now, here's, on the other side, the truly dark consequences of internet echo chambers. So you see social polarization. On the left is Brexit and Remain in the UK. And what you can see is there's very little interaction across this line. We know this story only too well. We thought the internet was going to give everybody a common platform and they would have access to all the information. In fact, it has done the opposite. And in the US, it's even worse. It's virtually a tiny touching zone between the red world and the blue world, to the point where people can't even talk to each other. So let me come back to Toronto and what this means for us and the kind of city that we've become. I love this pair of photographs because in the early part of the 20th century, the men who worked at the, the Gutterman Wurtz distillery, and they were all men, and they were virtually all Anglo-Saxon, lined themselves up against the wall in all the brick walls in the distillery, and they took that photograph. The people who work in the distillery now thought it would be fun to recreate the photo. And if you look at who's there, couldn't be more different in every respect. Uh, so this is our city. We are this extraordinary language quilt. We're a city where over 50% of us were born in another country. Over 50% identify as visible minorities. We need to be communicating with each other. If we fail to do that, if we fail to have common ground for communication, the kind of society that we aspire to is in peril. And we've seen what happens in so many parts of the world with a reversion to tribalism, to nationalism, and so on. I don't need to belabor the point. This is something that really struck me in Brampton. At some point, a group of people from Western Canada, they were not from Brampton, came and they posted this image, which you see on the left in Brampton. They took something that happened in India with a Sikh, a Sikh demonstration. And they said, is this what you really want? And they were trying to scare people in Brampton. And what I loved was the high school kids in Brampton, these kids that you see here, <laughs> recreated the poster. And they said, yes, this is what we really want. And it was a really effective response to that racist poster. So I am, to bring this close to home, I've been working with um, Sidewalk Labs since 2015, since long before they came to Toronto. And the objective for me, what the whole exercise is about, is how do we use technology and the innovations that it enables, which are real and significant, to at the same time prioritize the space and the opportunities for positive human interaction. So this is an image of what we call the stoa. We took a Greek word for the lower floors of the buildings, which will be intensely used by all kinds of uh, 
retail, not-for-profit enterprises, community services, social spaces, enabled by technology in the background, but where technology is not foregrounded, it's backgrounded. And that is the big challenge, coming back to the title of this talk. Um, well, how can we tap the human ecotone? Uh, ecotone in ecology means a place where habitats overlap, and that's where you have the richest kind of life that occurring. A shoreline is a perfect example of an ecotone. This is the Center for Social Innovation. I would call this a human ecotone, the kind of interaction that occurs in a space like that where you have so many people doing different things who actually share a space and network is what we're trying for. So I'm going to show you a proxy for what I think that looks like. This, I worked for three and a half years for the city of Amsterdam along the banks of the Eye, the river that runs through at the, at the head of the canals. And I work on the south banks, but I'm going to show you what's happening on the north banks of the Eye now, which is a really interesting, different kind of city planning. And this is what I'm going to show you is uh, there's a great term in French which is kind of difficult to translate. It's the version sauvage, the wild version of a phenomenon before it actually is codified and named and institutionalized. But this is how people are using the legacy of the industrial era on the north side of the eye. And what you're seeing is a whole organic reappropriation of spaces and buildings and human enterprises. These old, somewhat shabby buildings are being turned into incubation spaces for all kinds of new uses. A lot of young people who are very adept at the use of technology are at the forefront of doing this. And it's, it has a life and a character and an intricacy and an intimacy that I think we really need to aspire to. It has a radical mix of people living, working, shopping, recreation, culture. This just gives you some idea of the kinds of transformations of those buildings. Now the real challenge, going back to my original question, is how can we make cities, how can we make neighborhoods that have these characteristics in a digital age to foster a kind of human-centered urbanism? I wrote a piece in Spacing Magazine a while ago about this, and I just quote the last two things. Advances in technology inevitably play a critical part in the evolution of cities. How they're absorbed, what impacts they have are open questions. We have good examples and uncomfortable ones. The questions for me often come down to how a human-centered urbanism could be aided by technology, not be subverted by it. Can we assess potential solutions against human values and decide when to say no? Not exactly, bend, inflect, and choose. A young colleague of mine, Zara Ibrahim, uh, came up with this statement, which she calls the bargain. The change in our expectations that's being shaped through our digital lives, i.e., I'm giving you my data, give me a better experience, is about to hit our urban lives as the urban data movement hits us. Citizens will expect a relatively Bionometric city, organic, responsive, nuanced in understanding what they need. In other words, can we turn this inevitability into a virtue? As we fail to realize until too late with the car, the importance of sidewalk is its role as a test bed.
So, and you will see all this because the sidewalk, what's called the uh, Master Innovation and Development Plan, is going to be made public in a few weeks. And you'll see all the things I talked about here that can be enabled by the sidewalk project. A radical mixed use in a much more fine-grained form that we, that we have seen in our city. Uh, a much broader range of mobility options, moving away from auto dependence. Alternative means of dealing with waste, weather, weather mitigation, mass timber buildings that have a lot of really uh, positive qualities, innovations in financing and regulation. And the question is, can we be selective about how we use the technology to achieve those good things without falling into some of the traps that I've been talking about? Chief among the issues that needs to be addressed is this whole issue of data security, who owns the data, how is it managed, issues of privacy. And so this notion of an independent trust to manage and control data is being put forward, how it's populated, who's in control, what is the accountability, these are all very fundamental questions that have to be answered. So with the right choices, is there a potential to do the many things that will improve our quality of life and better use of resources for more people? This is a, these are a couple of images from Helsinki, which has really done fantastic things in a human-centered urbanism, harnessing technology in their neighborhoods. Uh, this is just an illustration of the many things similar to the list that I mentioned for sidewalk. And finally, it all comes back to that initial question, how can we make the city function as a platform which is enabling, catalytic, promoting inclusion and possibility based on a human-centered urbanism? And I, my fundamental argument is that we have to do this with eyes wide open, not what we did with the automobile in a kind of hypnotic euphoria back in the period immediately after World War II. That's it. Thanks very much.